Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ashu. Today's episode is the second in the month of September and is devoted to the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice article that appeared this month. It is an article titled Emergency Care for Transgender and Gender Diverse Children and Adolescents, and it's authored by Dr. Hannah Janeway and Dr. Clint Coyle, both of whom have joined us for today's podcast. If you're not already aware, there are twin publications, Emergency Medicine Practice and Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice that are published every month, and this month's article in the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice issue is free. That's right, it comes to you at no cost and the link is in the show notes. I highly encourage you to go and read the entire article after listening to this podcast and then go share it with your partners and your friends and anyone else you think might be interested in reading. Without further ado, here are Drs. Janeway and Coyle. I'm Hannah Janeway. I am the International and Domestic Health Equity and Leadership Fellow, the Ideal Fellow, um, at UCLA. I'm in my second year right now. And I'm an emergency medicine physician. It's an emergency medicine fellowship. Fantastic. That's a great name for yeah, a fellowship. It is. <laughs> Long. The acronym is short, but people don't know what it stands for, so I feel like I have to go through it. It took me a good you know, six months to learn the acronym myself. So That's right. That's part of the training. Exactly. <laughs> Important part of the training. I'm Clint Coyle. I'm the co-medical director for transgender health for the LA County Department of Health Services. I'm an emergency physician and an associate health sciences professor, clinical professor at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Um, I'm, I work at Harbor UCLA Medical Center on the faculty for the emergency medicine residency, and I am the associate medical director for quality and safety there at Harbor. Wonderful. Well, thank you both for being here. Today, we're talking about the article on transgender and gender diverse children and adolescents. And I wanted to have you both on here to talk about this specific topic, because honestly, it's something I don't know very much about. I think my experience in this arena uh, is exceptionally poor. So I was excited to read the issue uh, and uh, to go through the article, but then now I'm more excited to actually talk to the two of you about it uh, so that we can share with our audience all of the ignorance that I have and all of the pearls that you have to tell us. Uh, starting at the top, I think it was interesting to see the difference between the definition for gender and sexual orientation. So I think I was perfectly guilty of doing this in the past where I associated both of those almost together. But I did like the differentiation in the article. Uh, maybe one of you two could share with me the difference between those two for our listeners. Sure, I can do that. Um, I think this is some place that people get tripped up. And I also want to say before I answer your question that you know, both gender and sexual orientation can be really fluid for people and can change and be dynamic. And so, you know, these distinctions um, can change over a person's life and, and in relationship to other people. Um, so gender identity um, refers to a person's identification of their gender, whereas sexual orientation refers to a person's attraction to another person. So, for instance, um, sexual orientation can refer to my attraction to another person, but how I identify my own gender is a completely different distinction. Um, so to give you an example, you know, if you have a trans feminine patient, they can identify 
trans feminine means they identify as a female, but their sexual orientation can be anywhere along the spectrum. So they can identify as queer, they can identify as gay, they can identify as asexual. All those are separate identifications that are apart from their gender identity as a trans feminine individual. And when we talk about transgender, there are some terms actually that were included in a table in the article, which I also found very helpful. A set of terms that was retired or really not really in use anymore. And then a set of recommended terms. You've already used one of them, trans feminine, which then applies to someone who now identifies with a feminine gender. So yeah, trans feminine refers to an individual who identifies um, as a female who's... um sex assigned at birth was male. Not to forget that a transgender person could identify as straight. Let's not yes. forget about that. <laughs> uh, so a transgender man who is attracted to women might identify as straight. A transgender woman who's attracted to men also could identify as straight. So that's also in that spectrum. Good point. So if someone was uh, a born a female, but now identifies with the male gender, the correct term in that scenario would be? Transmasculine. Transmasculine. Okay. Yeah, and if someone is born a female and then still identifies as a female, um, then they're cisgender. You know, the work that we're doing is to eliminate this kind of gender binary to which most people subscribe. But yeah, in general, um, cisgender is a person whose sex assigned at birth matches their gender identity. And transgender is a person whose gender identity is different than their sex assigned at birth. I think one of the easiest things in working with gender diverse people is once the person tells you their gender identity, the sooner you get that in your head and you simply think about that person as that gender, the easier everything becomes. So if someone tells you I'm a transgender man, um, instead of thinking about this is a woman who's who's acting like a man or dressing like a man or trying to be a man, any of those thoughts kind of let those fall away. Um, and really focus on, okay, this, this person's a man. I'm going to use male pronouns. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about, uh, you know, his concerns and so forth. And then every now and then related to the medical care, you really got to think back about the person's sex assigned at birth and realize, oh, this is a man with a uterus. This is a man with ovaries and so forth. But the longer that you keep yourself thinking about this person that they were assigned female at birth and that female is the main thing you think of, the more confused you're going to get. It reminds me a little bit of uh, medical advice about jet lag. When you arrive in a new city, the sooner you align yourself to the new clock and the new location, the better off you're going to be. The more you keep thinking about, oh, my body thinks it's 1 a.m., you're, you're never going to adjust. No, I like that. In the vast majority of cases, you know, a person's presentation to the emergency department, you know, is not has nothing, you don't really even have to think about what their sex assigned at birth was. Um, and you can really just use their gender identity. If you think about what you see people for in the emergency department, a lot of times it's just, you know, a minor complaint or another complaint that doesn't really have anything to do or is not related at all to their sex assigned at birth. And you don't actually have to consider the fact that they're transgender and you can just really uh, focus on their their chief complaint um, as a patient. But like Clint says, sometimes, you know, there are things that can happen, especially with abdominal pain and other um, <clears throat> complaints that have to do more with um, potential um, reproductive organs where you do have to think about sex assigned at birth and what pathologies can be associated with them. And the reason we have this discussion is because there are some consequences to being 
ignorant of this interaction with our fellow human beings, really. The, the transgender uh, patients are at risk for lots of things that we don't really think about routinely in the emergency department. So uh, if you'd share with me just some of those things that people who are transgender are at risk for and why it's important that in our behavior in the emergency department, we, we take that into account. So I think one of the first things to know is that based on survey data, where transgender patients were surveyed about their experience with the healthcare system, uh, trans patients tell us coming to the ER can be a very traumatic experience and an alienating experience. Uh, many patients relate stories about going to the ED. Um, they were not treated respectfully. People didn't know how to interact with them. People even made fun of them. Um, they overheard comments in the hallways, things like that. Uh, and so this creates a barrier. And the consequence of that is that trans patients actually tell us they specifically have not gone to the ED when they needed to. They were sitting at home with abdominal pain and a fever and thinking, should I go to the emergency department, which is the best place to go when you have abdominal pain and a fever? Um, or should I wait until tomorrow when I can go to my primary care doctor who I trust, who knows me, who's not going to be confused by my identity? Um, and that's a very real thing and has very real consequences. Beyond the ED, there's actually lower rates of participation in pre preventive care. So things like cancer screening uh, for transgender individuals for exactly the same reasons. So this actually is really a public health problem uh, that we need to address. And for us as emergency physicians, this is at the core of our identity, right? The fact that any person with any problem can come to the ED any time of the day or night, that's huge for us. And so to hear that there's an entire group of people that don't feel comfortable coming to our place uh, because of us, um, it really is a call to action for us to learn about this, learn what to do, and develop this cultural competency. Now, in developing that competency, there is a recommended approach to even just introducing yourself to the patient and trying to begin that conversation as a physician and a patient. Uh, in the uh, in the article that you used, tell me tell me more about that and exactly how that proceeds. Well, one of the approaches that we recommend is when you're introducing yourself to a patient to introduce yourself, um, your name and your pronouns, um, and then ask the, especially for children um, and adolescents, um, and then ask the patient, you know, what their name is and what their uh, pronouns are. In addition, we also do recommend revisiting those sort of questions with adolescents later on in the interview when their parents are outside of the room. A lot of transgender and gender diverse individuals are not yet out to their parents, and there have been many studies that show that there is real harm that could happen if they were forcefully outed to their family members. Um, there have been a lot of individuals who've been kicked out of their homes or who have faced physical violence um, from members of their family, and so we also recommend you know, asking these questions uh, later on in the interview when the, you know, the parents or the guardians are out of the room. Not only does that, you know, I think asking people their pronouns um, and introducing yourself with your pronouns, not only does that really provide a space for transgender and gender diverse individuals to disclose to you, you know, how they want to be referred, but I think it also normalizes the idea that there are gender diverse individuals and transgender individuals in our society. So even if it is a cisgender, you know, child or adolescent, you know, the fact that we're using that terminology and we're saying it in a very comfortable way allows them to understand that this is something that is normal. This is something that should not be stigmatized and something that they can look at as, you know, a normal part of the human experience. 
you may have started seeing more people wearing a button with their pronouns on them or putting their pronouns in their email signature, things like that. And part of the idea behind that is if only transgender people are talking about their pronouns, then you automatically out yourself as transgender uh, when you bring up pronouns. Whereas if everybody is simply displaying their pronouns and the pronouns to discuss very freely, um, then it allows people their privacy. You know, that's a really good point. My question was going to be then this introduction is an introduction you use with every patient. It's not just the encounter with someone you know or suspect is transgender. You're going to start this conversation the same with every patient. Hi, my name is Sam Ishu. My pronouns are, you know, him and his, that kind of thing. Uh, but but you're going to do that with every one of your patients and not just with the, the uh, adolescent patient or the youth or a specific adult that you know is transgender? We've had some discussion around that. <clears throat> that's a little bit controversial. Um, for me personally, I would say that's not my practice at this point. Um, it definitely is something I would use. If I walk in the room and I feel like someone's gender presentation, I'm just not certain um, who I'm talking to. I think it's a very non-confrontational way. You start with your own pronouns. You're telling something about yourself. You make it very comfortable for the person to simply tell you, oh, my pronouns are them and them and they. You now find out this is maybe someone with a non-binary gender identity, something like that. Um, so I, I do it selectively at this point. There are a few people that advocate it in every communication. Uh, for me personally, as an emergency physician, I feel like um, there's already so many confusing interactions with the patients and ways that we can miss, uh, you know, get things off track. I'm a little concerned that still in 2020, this is a new enough approach that it might confuse a lot of patients and they might not understand. And now I've created a barrier to that good patient experience that I want every patient to have. Uh, so I'm still using it selectively. Uh, Hannah, I don't know what your experience is with this, but we did talk about some people are recommending it for every, every interaction. Yeah, with kids, I try to be pretty intentional. And especially because in general, you know, children and adolescents these days are, are far beyond what most adults are in, in understanding the gender spectrum, um, just because there's been more education. Um, but I tend to, with children, um, say my pronouns and ask their pronouns. Um, but I do actually ask every patient um, what, you know, what, how should I refer to you and what your pronouns are. Um, that's just my personal preference um, in trying to normalize things, but it can get difficult too, especially if your patients, you know, like a lot of my patients um, are Spanish speaking individuals and the terminology can be sometimes confusing, especially in languages where there is, um, for instance, in Spanish, where you actually have to, you know, change words based um, on gender. So if it's a gender neutral uh, pronoun, it doesn't necessarily, it's, it's more difficult, I would say, to say those words um, in a gender neutral fashion. Um, so, but yeah, I, I do it with everyone. It, it doesn't matter what language um, they speak. I don't always introduce myself um, with my, my pronouns. I, I just, I mostly do that with, you know, children and adolescents. Um, but for adults, I do ask them what's their name and how, how they would like to be referred to and what their pronouns are. Have you had the experience where you've had one answer with a parent in the room and a completely different answer when the parent's out of the room? Yeah, I mean, I definitely have. I think a lot of, especially young people, um, but even older adolescents and even adults who have their, you know, grown, they're grown adults and they have their parents in the room. A lot of people are not necessarily out to their family members or to other individuals who happen to have brought them to the hospital. And so sometimes, 
they'll disclose to me in another moment or, you know, especially with children and adolescents, uh, I will ask again later when, when we're by ourselves um, about what pronouns they use and, and how they refer themselves. Um, and sometimes they're like, oh, you know, just what I told you before. But there have been a few instances in, in my professional career where people have said, oh, you know, actually, this is how I identify. I'm just not out to my family yet. And I'm curious, do you make a point then of trying to have an interaction with the patient without the parent in the room at some point, or is just purely if the situation arises, then you ask again? They don't always disclose everything. And so my general practice with adolescents is to um, ask the parent to leave for at least some part of the interview to talk to them about, you know, sexual activity and, and about whether or not, you know, they have been consuming drugs or alcohol and how that could be related to the current pathology. And so, um, and whether they feel safe at home. Um, so I generally, that's my practice is to have the parent leave the room at least once anyway. And so during that time, I take advantage of that time to ask them that question again. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all had that experience in the emergency department, separate from gender identity, where, you know, the, the patient has a complaint and the, and the adolescent is saying there's a no, I'm fine. No, nothing, nothing, nothing. And as soon as that parent's out of the room, the, they look at you and say, I just took 100 Tylenol, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so uh, certainly that that interview without the parents is really important. And in the article, there several things were covered that are methods that patients will use to obscure their sex or to alter their appearance so that they can then uh, kind of have the outward appearance of their chosen gender. And in that scenario, uh, there are some relevant problems or relevant issues to us as physicians that we need to take into account. So uh, if we're talking about someone who was born with the female gender uh, and then is doing something like chest binding, uh, is that how is that relevant to our practice in emergency medicine? What kinds of diagnoses would that uh, lead us to consider? Yeah, so I mean, chest binding for people who are in the audience and don't know is basically any activity that involves compressing breast tissue in order to create like a flatter appearance of the chest, which is more congruent with the you know male presentation. Um, Chest binding in particular is very, very common. Um, I think we cited in our paper that in one study, they found that 87% of transmasculine respondents reported um, using or doing this activity. I've, I've found that this, this has come up a few times for me in practice where people have come in with various musculoskeletal complaints. And um, after going through like a full history and physical exam, we've realized together that it might be related um, to bind the binding of the chest, because a lot of times, you know, it involves pretty significant compression of the chest, um, either using a, you know, a commercial binder, or sometimes people use ace bandages or other like home remedies, if especially if they're low income, and they don't have resources to buy um, a commercial binder, which tend to be a little bit safer. Um, so there are other kind of more severe side effects that have been um, found with binding, um, including even pneumonia in some cases, or um, um, I think rib fractures um, and have been seen as well. But in general, especially with the commercial binders, musculoskeletal complaints are, are usually the most often. There's other things such as, you know, shortness of breath or chest pain that can also 
um, be complaints associated with binding. It's really only important in trying when you're trying to figure out the etiology of the patient's complaints so that you can let them know that this might be the cause um, of, of their pain or whatever complaint that they have. I think the most important thing that we wanted to say about you know, these sort of activities, which are very important for gender diverse and transgender individuals, is that these activities tend to really reduce um, patients' dysphoria and improve their overall you know, ability to enjoy their lives and feel safe. In, in, in situations that they might not have felt safe um, in the past. And so if it if the complaint is really, you really think that it might be secondary to one of these activities, such as um, tucking or, or binding, it's really important to have a risk-benefit conversation with the individual and not just advocate for complete cessation. Um, because cessation in general isn't usually what people want to do. And there's other things that you can advise them to do that will reduce their, you know, the overall pain that doesn't involve just completely stopping the activity. So for instance, some of the suggestions that we gave with binding in particular included, you know, binding um, in situations where they feel unsafe or they're going out or they're, you know, out with friends, but at home where they might feel more comfortable or in their room, if they don't always feel comfortable in all spaces of their house, but in their room or when they're sleeping um, to take off the binder in order to give you know, their body some time to rest and, and recover. And so a lot of it is conversations that you're having with the patient just about the risks and benefits so that they can make their own um, decision about how to um, continue. If you advocate for complete cessation, I think probably in a lot of gender diverse and transgender individuals that they, they might come away with a feeling like you don't really understand or you're not willing to understand their experience. And that could potentially be alienating. I, I think I wanted to comment. Um because we've used the word uh, violence and we've talked about safety and danger a couple times. And I just wanted to highlight, um, you know, violence against transgender people is a real problem. Uh, transgender people are at risk when people uh, realize that someone is trans in different situations, that person could be attacked. There's assault, there's even homicide against trans people in different situations. Um, we've been kind of sold and, and movies and television shows tend to have, have traditionally shown transgender people as a hazard that these are dangerous people who might attack you, uh, when in fact, the actual statistics tell us it's the other way around. And so a lot of the things that Hannah and I are talking about that trans people will do to align their body to their gender identity are really important. And if we, for example, like Hannah says, if you told someone to stop binding, suddenly the people around that person might realize that this person is trans and that could actually be a dangerous situation for them. Yeah, so I think that's a very important distinction to make. You know, we're accustomed as physicians to say, this is the cause of your pain. So we're just going to have you stop this activity and we're going to help you through whatever the process is, but it's understood. You're just going to stop this activity in this scenario. That's not really an option for some people. And the specific example given in the article was one of a uh, uh, chest binding for someone who's, for example, walking into a men's room, uh, or, uh, again, the family's not aware, or they're with friends who are not aware, or something of that sort. And those situations are not as easy to progress through if you're not performing the binding, then people are aware of of your uh, of your transgender. And, and in that scenario, that can lead to a lot of physical harm, a beating, violence. And that's, that's very, very different than the routine scenario where someone comes in with an ankle sprain because they've been doing too many 
uh, I don't know, P90 dips or exercises or something. And I just say, hey, you're taking this too far. You just need to stop and then this will go away. Uh, this is a very, very different scenario. Right. Now, on the uh, on the opposite side, now we're talking about the uh, the biologically male patient who is now performing two specific activities mentioned in the article, tucking and packing. Uh, so, so tucking being the actual pushing of the penis backwards into the perineum, if I got that right, uh, and and that actually has also some medical consequences. Uh, presenting primarily as as the increased risk for urinary tract infections, pyelonephritis, and uh, and and actual uh, bacterial contamination from the perineal area into the urethra. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, you know, including other things too, like candidates. You know, because the penis will be kind of positioned between the legs, it can create kind of a moist, humid environment. Um, but yeah, that's correct. And then the other thing you refer to, packing, is actually something that is done by transmasculine individuals, not transfeminine individuals. And that recur refers to basically putting a padding or some sort of phallic object to create the a kind of masculine contour to the groin. And that is an activity that transmasculine individuals utilize. Um, I do want to mention something about the question you asked was about someone biologically male. Um, and I just wanted to point out, we actually do try to avoid using the term biological sex. It's something that comes up a lot and people will mention it sometimes, you know, what is this person's biological sex? If you say that, are you talking about someone's chromosomal sex? Are you talking about their genitalia? Are you talking about their hormonal environment? Um, you know, so are you talking about their secondary sex characteristics and so forth? So um, we tend to really stay focused on the sex assigned at birth and the gender identity. So we would say someone who was assigned male at birth. Or the other thing is because the, the relevant question you're asking is specifically about the penis and testicles, we could simply talk about a patient who has a penis and testicles um, is, is going to be involved in tucking. A patient who has a vagina might be involved in padding. I think the other important point um, that goes along with this that I would it might be nice to bring up right now, um, because I've had a lot of questions about it, and I've seen a lot of, you know, different comments on emergency medicine um, boards and groups is, you know, how to document these uh, things in the chart. And there are a lot of terms that were initially used that we're kind of moving away from now um, and that aren't necessarily best practice. So one of those is it's very common to see in a chart that someone writes, you know, 26-year-old male to female. And that's also a term that we um, ask people to not use because it, it, it kind of takes away an individual's, you know, real, you know, identity. So it's better because you're saying they were male and now they're female. But what we're saying is they were always female, right? They were born with male sex characteristics, but they've always been female. And so it's much better to use terminology like a trans feminine individual. Um, and that, that pretty much says everything that you need to know um, about that individual or a trans masculine individual. That's what I use when documenting um, in a chart. So there's a lot of terminology like that that we included in this article, some things that have been moved away from um, and some things that are, you know, we're moving towards in the way that we um, describe transgender and gender diverse individuals that are more in line with how they see themselves. And I think it's really important that the other, I think, big point with that that we talked about in the article is that no matter what, the most important thing is just to refer to the individual in the way that they refer to themselves. So they might use a term that we have on this list that we said, you know, this is kind of out of 
we don't use this term really more anymore in medical discourse or academic discourse, but if they refer to themselves that way, then you should use that terminology back to them because that's their understanding of themselves and no one knows themselves better than they do. Yeah, so that's a good point of clarification for someone who this terminology is new to. The terms trans feminine and trans masculine are slightly confusing because I'm when I first read it, I wasn't sure which it was referring to. Their, uh, you know, their the the gender of which they were born or the gender of which they identify. Uh, uh, and and as I'm trying to figure out the terminology, that was a helpful clarification because the focus is on how what they identify as. So trans feminine uh, with the focus on what the patient identifies as would be then uh, the the feminine in that case refers to the patient's uh, identity. Uh, And that's a, that's a helpful clarification for both of those terms. Uh, Yeah. I think that's the best way for people to think about it, you know, is that we're, it's really patient centered. So we are using terminology that is patient centered in how they identify And so the words and terms we use, because you can also use transgender woman or transgender male, trans feminine or trans masculine, you know, the gender oriented terms such as masculine or male, those are centered towards the patient's gender identity, which is how they see themselves. Um, And then you can kind of move a step back from that if you really have to think about their sex assigned at birth. I think that one of the problems with uh, male to female transgender or female to male transgender is you're starting with the gender that the person is not. Um, You're starting with their sex assigned at birth, which is not how they identify. And so instead of saying female to male, you simply say transgender male or transmasculine. Um, again, a little bit like that time zone analogy, you're, you're, you're setting on what is the person's identity. And really, if you talk to a patient who maybe was, was assigned female at birth and now identifies as male, they may have had a male gender identity for 25 or 30 years. And so they keep bringing this up again, that you know, 30 years ago, um, they had a female gender identity. Um, it, it sort of becomes old news at a certain point. And the patient has moved on and we need to also. The other thing that we haven't mentioned yet is how to write in the chart or how to refer to gender diverse individuals. Um, And my general practice is, you know, when asking people how they identify, they'll usually say something like if they're gender diverse, you know, I identify as non-binary or gender queer um, or gender fluid. And I tend to use those that terminology in in when I'm reporting my chart. So I'll just say a 26 year old non-binary if that's the terminology they use. And then in parentheses, um, if it's necessary, I'll put their sex assigned at birth. Um, So I'll put sex assigned at birth X um, if it's relevant to their chief complaint. I don't know what Clint's practice is. Um, That's a kind of less uh, documented area in this field, but that's my general practice. Yeah, and and that's I I agree with that. I agree with what Hannah's doing. And also, um, if you if you have, say, a gender non-binary person and that's going to be in your tagline, it, it makes all the other doctors very nervous because they want to know, like, is this person a man or a woman? Like, I have to know. Um, when in fact, we actually don't have to know for 90% of our care, 85% of our care. So I might even start with this is a gender non-binary person, you know, complaining of chest pain, so and so and so and so. At a certain point, I may say this individual has a uterus and is complaining of crampy lower abdominal pain. It's like, okay, that's what I needed to know. I need to know they have a uterus. When it comes to our electronic medical record system, there are some certain certain things that are not yet overcome. So documenting someone's sex 
in registration, for example, uh, is something that's still performed. And how are you overcoming that? Or how are you explaining that to the patient when someone's asking them at registration, they have to present an ID or something of that sort? Yeah, this is a complicated problem. And EHRs really are in flux even right now in 2020. Uh, the VA system, for example, just recently changed to using sex assigned at birth as one field and self-identified gender identity as, the, as another field. Their, their EHR is now up to date with that. Other EHRs still have just one field for sex, um, and, and it's not clear what you should put in that box if you have someone who's sex assigned at birth doesn't match their gender identity. So stay tuned, because this is all getting tuned up as we go. Um, but I think a lot of what you were referring to is, what if you're stuck with an EHR that has says female is this person's sex, and this is a person who's identified as male uh, for 15 years, um, and presents as male, is, is using male hormones, uh, and so forth. Um, anytime that the, the, the conflict comes up and the patient sees this is on the paper, or maybe you have to use their dead name, which is what we refer to as the name that they were given uh, before that they do not use now. Um, if, this, if, if this comes up in the care, recognize that this is a pain point for the patient. And hearing people use that dead name or hearing people refer to their sex assigned at birth as if it's still their current gender identity, uh, is painful for the patient. And so warn them, say, you know, we need to do a safety check right now for a timeout. And your medical record has your name, Marcus. Um, and so I'm going to need to use that uh, during this, this safety check. But I know that your name is Sandra. That can be very reassuring to the patient that you acknowledge that this is, and you're not just casually using that dead name or casually using that incorrect gender uh, uh, without thinking. And I think this is particularly comes up a lot with um, gender diverse and transgender children and adolescents, because many of them have not had legal affirmation, meaning that they have not yet changed their names um, or their, you know, gender on their identity cards or their birth certificates or, you know, made any real changes that way because of their age. And so I think it needs, it's really, really important, especially in the pediatric setting. Um, and then the other thing I think that Clint and I talked about in this article, I believe, or we just talked about amongst one another. But the other thing is that one of the things that came out in some of the qualitative studies that we looked at was the fact that some transgender individuals felt very violated when their information was kind of projected throughout the emergency room and every single nurse and tech and, you know, nursing assistant knew, you know, what their gender identity was and what their sex assigned at birth was. Um, sometimes people are just trying to present as one gender and they don't really want anyone to know what their sex assigned at birth is. And that information that you have, that should be on a need to know basis on the with the care team only and shouldn't be talked about loudly in nursing stations or other places because individuals in the study said that it made them feel really unsafe, that there were other people in the emergency department who could hear this information. And so I think it's really important to keep that information um, on a need to know basis between the people who will be really caring for the person so that they know the name and, you know, the pronouns to use with the individual, but not every single person in the emergency department needs to be gossiping, gossiping about it at the nursing station, which tends to happen. Um, something that I've noticed as well. I just wanted to mention sort of on a side note, um, I, want, I was once giving a talk on this topic and someone at the end raised their hand and said, 
Uh, I have a question, but I'm sort of afraid to ask it because I'm not sure exactly what to say and I don't want to say the wrong thing, right? And so I want to make sure we're, we're, we're maybe, we're getting into so many details that are really important, but I don't want uh, your listeners to be scared that we're making this topic so complicated that you can't possibly figure out what to say and what not to say. And, and, and all of a sudden the patient's mad at you because of one little thing and so forth. Um, the important thing is uh, this is a new area for a lot of people and there is a lot of complexity to it. But the more time people spend reading about trans people and trans patients, listening to podcasts, just listening to this podcast is a huge step forward because the more you hear and the more you hear what people do say and what people don't say, the more comfortable you'll get and the more natural these terms will come out uh, for you. I remember the first time I, I said the phrase, his uterus, um, it got caught in my throat. I was like, did I just say that right? What, what is this? And now I talk about his uterus and her testicles, you know, all the time because I'm in this space all the time. And so the more you talk about it, the more you read about it, the more you hear about it, the more natural and comfortable you're going to be with patients. Many times people will say, if there's something you don't know, just ask the patient. Um, and I agree with that, except there's a caveat. Um, I agree. If you don't, don't fake it. Don't pretend you know what's going on if you don't. So if you say to the patient, you know, I, I, I see that you're taking masculinizing hormones. Um, I'm not sure if that might be related to your complaint, but I'm going to check. Um, that's that's fair. And even ask the patient, are you concerned this is a side effect of your medication? And because so, they often have a lot of information about their treatment more than you do. Um, so it's fine to ask the patient, but there's also a certain point where we have an obligation to learn about the patients we're taking care of. Um, and if you went into a heart failure patient and said, I'm not very good with the heart, um, what do you do you know what your what, what this means? Do you know what your echo results mean? Can you tell me? You know, that would be so inappropriate. So it, we 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 do have a duty to learn about transgender people and learn about transgender healthcare and come to the table with some information. And then you always can ask the patient if there's something extra that you just don't know and be honest with them. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, it does. That's a great point. Uh, you mentioned hormones, uh, and I did want to touch on some of the medical therapies for patients that we may encounter in the emergency department. So tell me what some of those are and specifically why they might be relevant to us as emergency physicians. So, yeah, I mean, I, and, and I want to go back to what Clint said really quickly, because I think this is really important. Like most of what we said up to this point, up to this point is the most important things that we're going to talk about. Uh, we'll talk about, you know, medical therapies and other things for the rest of this podcast. But I want you to know that, you know, a, a person's experience of their care really has to do with the things that we've already talked about. And just really little things like asking someone what their pronouns are or what name they use. Those are the things or you know, showing that, you know, I might not know everything about this particular condition, but I'm going to figure it out. I'm not going to put that burden on you. Um, those are the things that most uh, trans individuals in the you know studies that we looked at really cared about. Um, so here's so in terms of um, the actual medical treatments, you know, for transgender um, and gender diverse children, adolescents, one of the primary uh, modalities that are used is puberty suppression um, until they have the opportunity to decide fully, you know, whether or not they want to uh, medically transition um, using um, hormonal therapy. And so the primary um, medication that medications that are used are GnRH analogs. And in general, those are mostly reversible in contrast to gender affirming hormones. There was one study, um, uh, prospective um, 
cohort study that showed that actually two after two years of pu pubertal suppression, gender transgender and gender diverse individuals had less behavioral and emotional problems and fewer depressive symptoms. So these treatments can be really, really important and vital to um, gender diverse and transgender children. Um, in terms of these medications, really, you don't have to worry that much about them in the emergency department. Uh, there were very, very few side effects in the study, the study that was done on um, side effects of these medications in this age, pop, uh, age group. The only one that was really found to be statistically significant were hot flashes. Um, and other than that, there were really no other medication side effects or consequences. So I would say that if you have a patient who's presenting with a complaint, if it's something other than hot flashes, it's not secondary to the medication, and you should try to figure out some other cause to their complaint. And I think just a comment real quick, you could imagine if someone, say, had been presenting female throughout their entire elementary school and junior high, and now suddenly is faced with going through a male puberty, this could be really terrifying for this person. Um, they've always identified female, all their friends know them as a girl, and that, and so these puberty blockers that prevent someone from going through the wrong puberty are a really big deal um, and can really protect the patient from that uh, uh, anxiety and dysphoria. And then you mentioned once they get to the age where they can choose for themselves, then hormonal therapy can begin, and that's typically what age are we talking about in that scenario? A lot of times people are on the puberty blockers for a couple years. Um, and the puberty blockers are going to start when the person is uh, has already uh, been in the initial phases of puberty, like Tanner stage two. Um, so it's going to vary from person to person. But you could have hormones starting, uh, you know, as early as, uh, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, potentially. Uh, and then surgical um, uh, gender affirming surgery is not common in this age group. Obviously, that's something that comes later in adulthood. Yeah, surgery is actually really uncommon in children for gender affirmation. Um, most gender affirming surgeries, uh, really, the recommendation is that those are not started until someone's reached the age of majority. So 18 and up in, in most areas of the U.S. Um, the one exception is there are a few people that will offer chest surgery to older adolescents. So 16, 17-year-olds potentially are having chest surgery a little bit earlier. And there, we might see more chest uh, surgeries being performed in that age group, like the 16 to 18 age group. Um, in the near future, there have been some studies that have now been done on the effects of chest surgery, especially on psychologic and psychiatric um, core morbidities. And they've shown very promising results in the fact that they've really reduced suicidal ideation and, and depressive symptoms in patients who have more extreme forms of gender dysphoria. So, you know, we might be seeing more chest surgeries because of those studies um, in the older adolescent group um, in the future. Yeah, I think it's important for us to know the vast majority of people that use uh, gender-affirming hormone therapy or have gender-affirming surgeries, um, these change their lives in positive ways. People are happier, healthier, um, higher rates of employment, higher, lower rates of depression and suicide, things like that. So these really are treatments that really help the patient. As physicians, we tend to look at the, especially emergency physicians, we tend to worry about the, the downsides and the side effects. Um, and we should know about these possible complications, but really the vast majority of people have a good experience with this care and it really helps them. And I think one other thing that we mentioned in the article, but I don't know if we've mentioned it on this podcast, is that people 
um, make very different decisions about what sort of affirmation they may or may not want. And that doesn't always follow a simple trajectory in the way that many people um, have traditionally thought about it. So there's this kind of um, misunderstanding by many individuals that I've heard from who think, oh, you know, this is what you do. You, you know, first you change your name and then you take hormones and then you get surgery. And then only afterwards are you truly a transgender individual. And we're really getting away from that idea of that. Um, it's really how people identify themselves. Some people will never change their name, and but they might get surgery. And some people might take hormones, but never get surgery. Or some people might get surgery you know, and take hormones, but then stop taking hormones. I mean, it's, it's a, it really is an individualized process and what's right for one person might not be right for another person. And so we really try to stay away from this, you know, traditional pathway idea to the fact that people will, should, and will identify themselves in however they see themselves in the world. And we should really use those identities. And there is no one thing that any one person can do to, you know, define themselves in, in a particular way. They are what they say they are. It, it's kind of like us, right? Some people go to a three-year residency. Some people go to a four-year residency. Some people do a fellowship. Some people do more than one fellowship. Some people practice a while and then come back and do a fellowship. Uh, there's sort of no right or wrong way. Some people want to be called emergentologists. Um, some people prefer emergency physician. Everyone's a little different. <laughs> right. Uh on the uh, one last point on the the medical care. So uh, in the article, you made a, a specific point to talk about you know screening for sexually transmitted infections in pregnancy. But really, the point I took away from that is we just do it as we would with any other person who has those organs, and they, we don't we don't otherwise alter our care. So if you've got a uterus, you're going to be tested for pregnancy, uh, and regardless if you're sexually active, you're going to be tested for sexually transmitted infection if it's relevant to the medical care. Yeah. And once again, yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's correct. Um, and the care really depends on the organs you have. That's the focus. Um, however, uh, be aware that if you have someone who identifies as male, this act of performing the pregnancy test may be offensive to that person. So I'm not saying to not do the pregnancy test or not offer the pregnancy test to the patient, but be aware it's not a small thing. And so you don't want the nurse with this male patient sitting there um, for, you know, just casually be like, I'm doing the pregnancy test now, pregnancy test on room three is next, you know, <laughs> but when you say to the patient, you know, I know you're a man, but because you have a uterus, we always do a pregnancy test on everyone who has a uterus. And so that's why we're doing this done and done that, that framing can really help. And remember that people can always decline exams. So, you know, the individual has the opportunity to decline. And I always present it that way when I'm talking to individuals. I'm like, this is this would be my preference as, as a physician. This is my advice. But you always have the option to decline if it's going to be really difficult for you and you are convinced that this would not be positive. But these are my concerns. And I think, you know, as long as you explain it to the individual, um, I think it's fine. There have been some complaints in the community, in the transgender community, about pregnancy tests, especially on transmasculine individuals. They're like, their doc the doctor didn't even understand me. I told them I was transgender and then they did a pregnancy test. I can't believe they did that. And I think all of those things can um, be overcome by just taking the time to explain to the patient what you're thinking is and why you want to do the exam um, and, and, and presenting it to them in, the, um, in a space where they still have autonomy as a patient to either accept or decline the exam. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially now as patients take all patients take more control over their medical care. We are not some of us are not accustomed to actually asking for something like that. We go, oh, that's a female with abdominal pain, go ahead and get the pregnancy test. And we don't actually have that conversation with the patient or announce to them, uh, we're going to test you for pregnancy. It's not an insinuation that you are pregnant. It's a protocol that we have for all people with a uterus who present with abdominal pain. Uh, and so uh, in this population, I could certainly see why that conversation is, is even more necessary um, so as not to cause that confusion or offense. Some of the problems uh, for transgender patients that uh, or issues that they're at increased risk for. The the list in the article was quite lengthy uh, and included some things I really was, again, surprised to see. Uh, substance abuse, suicide and self-harm, uh, anxiety, depression, and eating disorders. Uh, but then physical and sexual violence was something that had not really occurred to me uh, previously, uh, before I read the articles, so that was that was new to me, as well as uh, things like family rejection, homelessness, uh, food insecurity, and poverty. Again, things that I don't routinely think about for uh, patients in this population. So, the all of those things become relevant to to transgender patients in general. But then, just all the more reason to be careful with who's in the room family members and friends and communication, uh, who's accessing medical records and information, who we discuss these kinds of things with. Is that right? I think, yeah, I think in general, um, uh, the thinking is that while there are higher rates of things like depression and suicide and anxiety and things like that, our general thinking is that this is not because a transgender identity is in itself um, pathological, but rather that it's the reactions of people around them and the world around them that create this stress on individuals and lead to a lot of the problems that you were listing there. And so the hope is that as the world becomes a space that's more open to diverse gender identities and a safer place for people with diverse gender identities, that we'll see lower and lower rates of all the different kinds of problems like you uh, listed there. And that's a really important point. Um, different issues around gender used to actually be in the DSM as different kinds of mental illnesses. And over time, uh, those have, have one by one been removed. And at this point, uh, gender identity is not really considered, uh, gender dysphoria, not really considered a mental illness uh, per se. And so that's really important to understand. Um, th there's the concept out there of minority stress, which says when a member of a minority group is mistreated by the majority, that this is a constant source of stress for that individual. And so many of the difficulties people experience is because of that minority stress that is exerted on them uh, by everyone else. And so just by listening to this podcast, we're all part of the solution to that, becoming a more welcoming, more supportive environment for everyone. Yeah, and the same can be applied to, you know, social determinants of health. Um, as you said, you know, transgender and gender diverse individuals tend to have many more barriers to care and experience homelessness, poverty, and um, other um, social issues more commonly than their cisgender counterparts. And a lot of that has to do with this minority stress. It has to do with parental rejection. It has to do with discrimination, not being able to find a job or other form of employment because of discrimination against them because of their gender identity. And so those are and, you know, that leads to homelessness, which, you know, increases their chance of, you know, violence and, and um, also their gender identity and how they uh, identify themselves. Unfortunately, you know, 
the United States still has a significant amount of uh, discrimination against uh, transgender and gender diverse individuals. And so, you know, all of these ills are products of our society. But it's good to be aware of them as an emergency physician because sometimes you could screen and inter, uh, intervene as we're increasingly being able to do um, from the emergency department itself. And then one last question. When you encounter a, a provider, so this is a physician, a nurse practitioner, a PA, anyone working in the emergency department who you know maybe listens to this podcast, reads this article, and then now is interested in actually learning more what resources would you recommend? The UC San Francisco Center for Excellence in Transgender Health uh, is operated by Dr. Madeline Deutsch, who actually is an emergency physician by training. I actually went to residency at Harvard with uh, Maddie way back when. Um, and she operates a uh, online reference that covers really all aspects of transgender related healthcare from A to Z. And so um, going to searching for that at, at ucsf.edu, I think is a great resource for technical questions around transgender health. Yeah, and then just familiarizing yourselves with your local resources, what you know groups are out there, what um, clinics there are, what places you can refer people to, especially if you identify you know, a family that comes into the emergency department and the child is struggling with their gender identity, then you, know, you have a place to refer those individuals to where they can get appropriate primary care consultation. And um, so that's really important um, as well. Yeah, PFLAG is an online group that is designed for uh, LGBTQ people and their families and friends and that, because we have to remember in the PZD, uh, the patient of course comes first, but we also have to think about the parents. And so as a child is uh, discovering their gender identity and exploring, we have to recognize that a lot of parents may not have a lot of knowledge about this, may have a lot of misconceptions, may be concerned. Um, and so connecting them to this PFLAG online resource, uh, PFLAG, uh, org is another great resource because the parents that way can connect with other parents um, and understand what their uh, what their approach can be. Well, that's it for this episode of Amplify. Thank you again to Drs. Hannah Janeway and Clint Coyle for an outstanding pediatric emergency medicine practice issue and taking the time to teach us here during the podcast. In the show notes, you'll find the links to the references that Dr. Coyle mentioned, as well as the link to the free issue, which I highly encourage you to go and read. In fact, while you're there, consider subscribing to both Emergency Medicine Practice and Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice. A subscription to both is only $50 more than a subscription to one of them, and that's a great deal for the amount of CME that you're going to get from both of these publications. And that's a wrap. Until next time, I'm your host, Sam Eshoo.